Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 4, pages 304 through 370. I always think it's useful in, uh, in Marx's text to try to keep in mind a, a sort of a map of where we've been and what we're doing. So I thought I would uh, start with uh, a little resume of uh, some of the earlier uh, sessions. The first session, if uh, you recall, is essentially about uh, the question of totality and its moments. Uh, that is, uh, Marx is looking at uh, the way in which classical political economy has handled questions of the relations between uh, production, distribution, exchange, consumption, realization, and the like. And Marx himself is saying that uh, the way this is set up in classical political economy uh, misses something, and it misses it because it doesn't have a concept of the totality and that we need a concept of the totality in order to understand the internal relations between uh, all of those uh, moments. And this is uh, then uh, what Marx is sort of laying out in the first uh, uh, session, and clearly uh, one of the ideas that's going to be pursued throughout the text is how to get to a better understanding of the totality and its, uh, its moments and the relations that exist uh, between uh, the different moments within the totality. Uh, the totality, however, has to be understood not as simply an idea. Now, at some point or other, we need the idea, we need to get a representation of the totality, so it's not as if uh, there is not a mission to try to represent it uh, in the realm of ideas. Uh, but the totality is itself not created by the ideas. The ideas do not uh, get imposed upon it, as it were. Uh, the totality is something that grows, and Marx uh, uses the analogy that it's organic. Uh, I would say it's ecosystemic, that it has uh, uh, got many, many different facets interacting. Uh, and that uh, it is a historical product as far as Marx is concerned. So we have to look at the historical process which brings the totality into being, in which the moments start to interact with each other and through their interactions reshape the totality. So the totality is something which is in continuous evolution. Uh, and uh, therefore our thought and our representation of uh, the totality also uh, has to be in continuous evolution. We have to uh, try to keep pace uh, with what is happening uh, on, on the ground, as it were, uh, in the realm of ideas. And this is Marx uh, taking the notion of the totality and its moments 
and saying these have to be treated uh, according to the principles of historical materialist investigation, uh, which is always about starting with uh, uh, processes occurring on the ground. So having laid that out, Marx then in the next uh, section on, on money uh, is going to ask some questions about uh, the first uh, moment in the, uh, my representation of the totality, which is that diagram that I'm always sort of flashing at you, this one, uh, where you start with the money and, 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 and so money being the first moment. Now, Marx is here obsessed, of course, uh, very much with uh, the uh, uh, Proudhon and his ideas about it. And what he wants to combat is the idea that somehow or other the totality can be transformed simply by getting hold of the money and and, 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 and revolutionizing the monetary system. Uh, and Marx uh, plainly thinks that that is a crazy idea. So he spends a lot of time trying to disabuse us of that. But in the process, I think he does something very significant, which is to take uh, the notion of money and say, well, there are many things that money is doing in society, uh, but money capital is a very specific aspect of the totality that we're going to look at, and that therefore we have to look at the circulation of money capital and the way in which money capital gets launched uh, into this system, uh, understanding that not all money is capital, but capital is always money at a certain point of its, of its process of circulation, uh, and that therefore the monetary moment is important to understand in its own right, but you don't attribute to the monetary moment uh, all of the powers that Proudhon and the others typically did uh, assign to it. Uh, that then leads Marx into the first uh, sort of cut at uh, getting into question of, all right, well, what is capital? We've got money, which is being used as capital, so what is capital? And much of what then follows in this week, but also in, in subsequent weeks, is trying to come to terms with exactly what is uh, capital. And the first cut of it is to kind of say, well, capital is a, money capital is about money being used to make more money. Uh, and that therefore, uh, we have to look upon uh, capital not as a thing, and this is something where he's very critical of classical political economy because uh, capital was always considered as a thing which got introduced into production, but Marx says capital is not a thing and takes the view that capital is a process. It's a process which is not simply about circ circulation, it's a process which is about production and circulation taken together. It's a process which is uh, engaged in a spiral form rather than a cyclical form. The spiral takes over that therefore it is a system which is continuously multiplying. So if you like, the basis that Marx comes to uh, in, the th in the third uh, session is to say capital is defined as a process, and it's a process which is in continuous expansion and endless accumulation. And that endlessness is attached uh, to the desire for more wealth, and so there's also a psychological aspect to this which Marx uh, takes up to some degree, which is the drive uh, that people have for more and more wealth. And uh, that drive is very much behind uh, what the capitalist is, is doing, 
when they take money capital and launch it into circulation in a certain way. But if it is in continuous expansion, this poses a very serious problem because if it is expanding through the market system, then the market is characterized by an exchange of equivalence. So the big question is, how can a system which is based on equivalence of exchange actually expand and grow? Uh, where does the growth come from? And that is not covered last week, and that is uh, the theory of surplus value, which is where we're at this week. So this is, uh, if you like, the week when we move from simply about money is expanding to answer the question, how is it, does it expand and what is the mechanism of, of expansion? So there is, a, like I say, this flow in the argument, and when we know where we are in the argument, then it seems to me it's, uh, the book itself becomes less uh, uh, intimidating because this week there are pages and pages and pages which are about thalers and how much thaler this went into that, which frankly drive me nuts and I don't want to have to spend much time uh, talking about it. So when you're looking at this, you say, what is all this doing here? Um, you can sort of see what it's doing there, but uh, that's the sort of thing where I kind of say, well, in terms of the, the macro story we're looking at, I'm not so sure uh, this is terribly, terribly relevant. So you, you, can, you can read it and see if you get anything out of it, but frankly, I'm, I'm not going to be very concerned with that uh, in, 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 this, uh, uh, in this session. But the starting point here is, I think, very interesting in, in this uh, section. Uh, and Marx starts off by uh, taking up that uh, where, he's, where, we, where he left off uh, last week, but then says this, uh, the end of the process of production, which was begun with the presuppositions of capital, capital appears to have vanished as a formal relation. That's because capital has become a commodity or has become now becoming a, a production process. Uh, so capital itself seems to have vanished as a formal relation. Then this can have taken place only because the invisible threads which draw it through the process have been overlooked. Now this idea of the invisible threads is, I think, uh, something which we should spend a little time thinking about. Uh, it is something that uh, crops up very much around the question of what is value. Uh, value is crucially important uh, in all of this, but value is also immaterial but objective. That's what he says in Capital. Uh, in Capital, he also talks about the phantom objectivity of value. And here we're talking about invisible threads. Uh, and this is, a, this is rather difficult, I think, to uh, deal with, in part because the imaginary of what Marx is about is, is that he's, he's a, a materialist. So how can you have a materialist analysis which talks about invisible threads? How can you have a materialist analysis which is talking about phantom objectivities? And Marx obviously loves the phantom side of things, and, 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 and talks about that, that kind of thing. So how can you be a materialist uh, and, 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 and then say the invisible threads are crucial uh, and the like? And of course, it has everything to do with the fact that Marx is not so interested in things. 
as he is interested in the social relations. And the way in which I think you, you would, could think of this is imagine that you see somebody digging a ditch. Uh, and you could describe in great detail, you know, what the energy is going into digging the ditch, how deep the ditch is, and how long it takes to dig so much of the ditch, and you can all these physical things, and you can describe all of the physicality of digging the ditch. But at the end of the day, that wouldn't tell you what you would really want to know. Because you would really want to know if the person digging the ditch is dig digging it as a wage laborer, is digging it as a slave, is digging it as part of some collective uh, uh, Minga thing in Ecuador or wherever, you know, indigenous kind of collective labor system, uh, or, or is just some insane aristocrat who just likes to take uh, exercise by digging ditches and filling them with things, you know. I mean, what... So, but how do you find that out? Can you, by looking at the process, actually say which of those it is? No, the answer is you have to go and ask. <laughs> are, you a, are you a wage laborer? Are you a, a slave? Are you, you know, what? A serf? This is common, you know. And, and for Marx, the most important thing about digging the ditch is not digging the ditch, but who digs the ditch <coughs> and the nature of the social relation which exists. And the social relation is not something that is immediately obvious. Yes, there may be physical signs of what the social relation is. I mean, if the person digging the ditch has an overseer there with a whip, you kind of got a pretty good understanding that this is not free wage labor and it's not a, a, a collective uh, uh, communal uh, activity. But, but what Marx, I think, is want, trying, wanting us to do is to say the social relation is critical. And right throughout, this is one of the things that comes back again and again and again in Marx, the social relations are critical. This is one of the things where he's so critical of Proudhon, because Proudhon does not look at the social relations and doesn't kind of say, okay, if you don't change the social relations, then you don't change capital. And what is, what is interesting is, so frequently you find socialist thinking is about changing the actual physical world in some way, creating more of the stuff so that you can distribute more of the stuff to people. But Marx's argument is, no, what you've really got to look at is changing the social relations. So what is the social relation which is, which is absolutely central to capital and what capital is about. Well, of course, it's going to be the class relation. It's going to be the relation between capital and labor. And it's that social relation which is critical. And there can be no socialist solution, no anti-capitalist movement that doesn't address the criticality of that social relation. If the social relation remains intact. Now, attached to the social relation are modes of thought, modes of, uh, of, of, of activity, forms of organization, institutional arrangements, legal structures, and, 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 and all the rest of it. But at the heart of it, Marx is saying, look carefully, always, at the social relation and the nature of the social relation. And this is what the invisible threads are about. He's saying, just because you don't see capital at work in the labor process, and you can't tell from examining the labor process 
what the social relation is doesn't mean the social relation is unimportant. In fact, the social relation is going to be critical, always. And this is, I think, one of Marx's central contributions, is to always draw our attention to the nature of the social relations. Um, and, and I think this is kind of you know, a fascinating thing. I mean, I've, I've come across uh, communal efforts to do this or that. You know, you can get workers collectives or something like that. But if the social relation doesn't change and the social relation has a way of coming back, then you find something that started out as a socialist enterprise suddenly becomes capitalistic. An interesting example of that would, of course, be something like the Israeli kibbutz, understood initially as a completely different kind of social order, but the social relation is gradually creeps back in and the social relations in which the kibbutz is embedded are such as to, what as Lefebvre would, would say it, that something different can happen for a while, but then it gets reabsorbed into the dominant praxis, which is reabsorbed into the dominant social relations in Israeli society, in which case it no longer had its socialist content, and it just, that socialist content disappeared. So Marx is here kind of saying, all right, well, I, I'm, we have to look at the social relation. And that is the invisible thread. And he takes this up, and I'm just going to jump ahead and say, if you jump from 304 to uh, 308, 309, um, many people, I think, have a, an understanding of this. And, and, and on, on 309, he, he kind of says, uh, he talks about Ricardo, Sismondi, and so on, and, 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 and talking about labor. Uh, and then, then, then he says, they, then they do not conceive capital in its specific character as form, as a relation of production reflected into itself, but think only about its material substance, raw material, etc. But these material elements do not make capital into capital. Then, however, they recall that capital is also, in another respect, a value, that is, something immaterial, something indifferent to its material consistency. Thus, and he quotes here Say, who Marx doesn't generally like, saying, capital is always an immaterial essence because it is not material which makes capital, but the value of this material, a value which has nothing corporeal about it. That is, you cannot go to a commodity. All right, this book is a commodity. How do I find out its value? Can I start dissecting it, looking for <coughs> atoms of value? No, you can't. And if you can't find the value in it, then what are you going to do? Throw the book away? Well, I guess if you're a right winger, you would, but this is. But, but Marx is kind of saying, no, it, the value is there. But you just don't see it, and you can't see it. And it's therefore immaterial. But because it's immaterial does not mean it is just totally phantom-like, and that it has no objective meaning. And this idea of things which are 
uh, immaterial but objective is again something that just comes back again and again in Marx's thinking and in his presentation. And it's not difficult to follow. I mean, I know it sounds a little fantasy-like, but you know, thoughts are immaterial. I mean, where can you where can you find a thought? But thoughts have objective consequences, right? So if thoughts have objective consequences, then that relationship between the immaterial and the objective is actually about consequential thoughts. So that's what Marx is, is, is heading for here. And capital is like that. Capital is centered on value, and value is immaterial but objective. Uh, it, is it is the invisible thread which pins all of this circulation process together. So that in this circulation process, value has the monetary form, then it has the commodity form, then it has the production form, then it has the commodity form, then it has the money form, and it comes back round. So value takes these different forms, but value itself is indifferent to those forms. Value is what is the invisible thread. And we have to follow value in order to understand the dynamics of this whole process that we're looking at. So Marx then goes on to say, well, okay, the first result is this. Capital becomes the process of production through the incorporation of labor into capital. Initially, however, it becomes the material process of production, the process of production in general. That is, it, all economic systems have production. So the, the process of production, the physicality of it, is not unique to capitalism. The process is general. So he then goes on to say, what we're going to be looking at here is the labor process. What is the process pushing the expansion when we know, and this comes up several times in this section, when we know that this cannot occur through circulation, if the circulation is based upon market exchange, which is based on the exchange of equivalents. That is, you cannot get a surplus value out of market exchange relations. There can be particular cases where a merchant will be able to do that, but if you, you, know, you rob Peter to pay Paul, there's no aggregate expansion. Capitalist system is about aggregate expansion. There has to be a mechanism for the aggregate expansion. And Marx is here saying it's likely that this process of expansion is going to lie in the labor process. So we need to dissect the labor process. So we go from this idea of expansion to say, so, right, let's inspect the labor process. But in the labor process, you can't see capital, right? You can't see value. You can't even see value being made or congealed. Yet it is. It's the hidden form. So he's going to say, look, when we look at the labor process abstractly, this is on 304, in terms of its pure materiality, we find something that is common to all forms of production. And that commonality is something which is actually embedded 
in capital. In exactly the same way that I mentioned about digging the ditch could be all kinds of different modes of production. So capital, in effect, is one mode in which the generality of ditch digging and processes and all the rest of it uh, can, can be uh, articulated. So he then starts to look uh, uh, at, at, at this. Um, and capital is something which is going to reproduce and increase its value. Well, how does it do it in the process of, in the labor process? Now, I don't know if you uh, spent time looking at the footnote on 305. Um, it's a rather interesting one. Because it is taking up the question of what is productive labor. Productive labor is something which produces value and, and maintains value. So what happens here is that Marx is going to argue that capital does not exist without labor. Now, the way we would tend to think of things would be to say, well, okay, there's capital over there and then there's labor over there. And Marx's argument is no. Capital is something that only arises because labor is incorporated in that labor process and, that, and that, under that social relation. In other words, it's the importation of the social relation that, that creates the distinction between labor and capital. Because otherwise, you would just end up with the idea that everything is just work. And there would be no distinction between, between capital and labor. So capital arises when labor becomes incorporated in the product in a certain kind of way and appropriated in a certain kind of way so that the capitalist comes into existence through what labor does. So it is the laborer who creates capital. And of course, it's the capital which is going to dominate, come return to dominate labor, but it's labor which creates the capitalist. And so Marx is going to play that, that kind of dialectical game. But this question of what is productive labor, and Marx is fairly explicit here on 305 and in this little footnote, Productive labor is only that which produces capital. Is it not crazy, RCG, or at least something similar, Mr. Senior, that the piano maker is a productive worker, but not the piano player? Although obviously the piano would be absurd without the piano player. And then he talks about this for a little bit. Now, this is actually wrong because there are situations in which somebody can make a piano without it being a commodity, without it being sold. In other words, you either, you either say, well, uh, uh, pianos are only built under capitalism, or, or, or you say, well, there's a possibility to build a piano in a completely different way. It's easier with other musical instruments. For instance, if you take a guitar or you take a flute or something like that, and, you know, people make them for themselves. That's not productive labor in the sense that it's producing surplus value for the capitalist. It's just producing a, you know, just worker producing a guitar or making a flute or 
or something of that kind. But in this case, Marx is saying the piano maker re reproduces capital. The pianist only exchanges his labor for revenue. Okay. But then it turns out the, the, the pianist, if they're hired by a capitalist uh, to play nice songs in a, you know, in a bar somewhere, but actually then the pianist is creating value for the bar owner. So actually this example is wrong. <laughs> Why? I think uh, a flute is not at all a piano. No. No, I know a flute's not a piano, but yeah, of course. <laughs> but but my, my point is that, that you, you could imagine uh, a communal operation in which the piano would be produced communally, not, 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 under the, not, not as, a, as a Steinway for the Steinway company. Yes. Flute, yes. To make a piano, you need a lot of different. Yes, but you could still do that communally. Yeah. It's in principle. Yeah. You could, you could, you could have a socialist commune, and you, you know, somebody, people would get together and make a piano. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. And 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 then again, it, this is it's a social relation. Yeah. Now, actually, what Marx does, if you go to, there's, a, there's another interesting point where he puts it, which is on 329, uh, at the bottom of 328, where, uh, in fact, he, he, he changes his position to, to refute the stuff about the piano player, because he says, actors are productive workers, not insofar as they produce a play, but insofar as they increase their employer's wealth. Right, so a pianist could employ, you know. So, it, you know, the example he uses here on this productive and unproductive labor is kind of a bit, a bit, a bit wonky. Well, this, this happens in the Grundrisse, right? You've got to get used to this sort of thing happening. I mean, he, he launches into it and he doesn't think and he doesn't go back and correct it and so on. But this, this statement here that there's a difference between the piano maker as a, as a productive worker and the pianist is not. Well, if you kind of say what is productive is, the, is whoever produces wealth for the capitalist, well, in fact, that could be both in piano and, or not in piano. So the, the, the criterion is that you produce, productive worker is somebody who produces surplus value for capital. That's the, def, that's the definition of, of a productive worker. In capital, Marx is very explicit about that and says, okay, notion of the productive worker is somebody who produces wealth for the, for the capitalist. Uh, but, nevertheless, in the bottom of this uh, uh, sort of footnote, Marx is kind of saying, uh, labor becomes productive only by producing its own opposite. What 
And it gets back to this what is this, is this uh, what is the social relation between the laborer and the capitalist? And how is value transferred through the labor process to the capitalist? And so he goes on to explain this on 306 when he says a use value for capital. Labor is a mere exchange value for the worker. Again, Marx is not using his own terminology correctly here because it's not labor, which is a mere exchange value for the worker. It's labor power. And he later on is going to distinguish between labor and labor power. The laborer is not sold. <coughs> labor power is sold. And that is the, the distinction between wage labor and the slave is the, the slave is sold, the laborer is sold, the worker is sold under slavery. In wage labor, the worker is not sold, the labor power is sold. So if that's the case, then there's a big question. If labor power is sold, then what is the value of labor power? And this goes on on 307, where he kind of says, the worker therefore sells labor, and again it should be labor power, as a simple predetermined exchange value determined by a previous process. He sells labor itself as objectified labor. He sells labor only insofar as it already objectifies a definite amount of labor, hence insofar as its equivalent is already measured, given. Capital buys it as living labor, as the general productive force of wealth, activity which increases wealth. It is clear, therefore, that the worker cannot become rich in this exchange, since in exchange for his labor capacity as a fixed, see there it's labor capacity, as a fixed available magnitude he surrenders its creative power, like he saw his birthright for a mess of pottage. Rather, he necessarily impoverishes himself. And then we get towards the bottom of the 307, we're going to, that's the productivity of his labor, his labor in general. Insofar as it is not a capacity but a motion, real labor, comes to confront the worker as an alien power. Capital inversely realizes itself through the appropriation of alien labor. So again, it's this alien capital, alien labor, which Marx has set up before, which meets in the labor process. And there is that inversion, if you like. And this then leads Marx to kind of say, well, you know, when you start to look at this, we see a whole raft of consequences. And he lists these on 308, the longest passage, where he says, thus all the progress of civilization, or in other words, every increase in the powers of social production, in the productive powers of labor itself, such as results from science, inventions, division and combination of labor, improved means of communication, creation of the world market, machinery, etc., enriches not the worker, but rather capital. 
Hence it only magnifies again the power dominating over labor, increases only the productive power of capital. Since capital is the antithesis of the worker, this merely increases the objective power standing over labor. So the labor creates the capitalist and then the capitalist has the power, is in power to dominate labor. So this is the kind of social relation which we're looking at. Labor, he says on 308, itself is productive only if absorbed into capital, where capital forms the basis of production and where the capitalist is therefore in command of production. The productivity of labor becomes the productive force of capital, just as the general exchange value of commodities fixes itself in money. So this is about a transposition of the productive force of labor into the power of capital. Wage labor, he says, presupposes capital. So that from its standpoint as well, capital in this transubstantiation, so he uses this phrase, transubstantiation. That's what goes on in terms of the transfer of productive capacity and power from labor to capital. The necessary process of positing its own powers as alien to the worker. That is, the worker is not actually interested in their own productive capacities and powers because they're, they're alien. They're alienated, they're appropriated. And that gets around to this idea that capital is always an immaterial essence. This is better explained, I think, on 3.10 and 3.11. That is that what we're looking at here is the coming into being, the process of becoming of capital. And again, this idea of a process. Capital is a process, but capital as a process has to, is not something that's given. It's something that has to arise. And, and the becoming of it is important. We are present, he says, at the process of its becoming. This dialectical process of its becoming is only the ideal expression of the real movement. This comes back to the argument earlier. Marx is always interested in the real movement, but interested in how do we depict that real movement in the world of thought. This dialectical process is only the ideal expression of the real movement through which capital comes into being. The later relations are to be regarded as developments coming out of this germ, but it is necessary to establish a specific form in which it is posited at a certain point. That is, hitherto capital has been regarded from its material side as a simple production process. So 310 to 3.11. But from the side of its formal specificity, this process is a process of self-realization. Self-realization includes preservation of the prior value as well as its multiplication. And then he goes on, value enters a subject. Labor is purposeful activity. That is, somehow or other the laborer has to be animated or forced or coerced or, or brought into 
a production process which is going to produce wealth for capital and is going to produce capital and it's going to, as it were, occupy the production process in such a way as to answer the question of how do you get an inequality out of an exchange system based upon the equality of exchange. This only happens, however, it, when you, you go through this whole circulation process. And again, what Marx is reluctant to do is to say, you can just understand it in itself. No, you've got to understand the totality. And it's positionality in the totality which becomes very important. Because what this does is to say that this process of circulation is such that at the point of production, labor is going to be mobilized to produce wealth for the capitalist. But that wealth which is produced for the capitalist is not sort of delivered directly to the capitalist, because the capitalist takes what the laborer has done and takes it into the market and sells it and starts to send it into circulation. Which leads Marx to argue, on 3.12, what is really being posited here is that there is going to be a higher exchange value in circulation, but that is an, a, a higher value that cannot originate out of circulation itself, in which in its simple character only equivalents are exchanged. Therefore, if it comes out of circulation as a higher exchange value, it must have entered into it as such. Here's the hidden thread. The hidden thread has done something within the production process to produce a higher exchange value than existed. But you only realize that exchange value when you take it to market. How do you know that you've got surplus value? Well, you look at the money you started out with and the money you ended up after you sell the commodity and you see you've made something called profit. And this represents the expansion. And Marx is kind of saying the expansion occurred somehow in the production process. But that production process does something else. And this gets in, in 313 uh, onwards into a fairly extended discussion. But if exchange cannot create value, then the production process has to not only create the value, but it has to preserve the value that already exists. Marx's formulation is constant capital plus variable capital, C plus V, usually put in those terms. But C plus V is the value of, of the means of production plus the value of labor power. Those, those values have to be preserved. Those values have to be preserved even in a situation where the commodity which is made, which is bearer of those exchange values, 
disappears from circulation because it's eaten or used up or whatever. So the use value is consumed, but the value is maintained. So it's not as if you've produced a hamburger and there's a certain value of the hamburger and when the hamburger is eaten, the, the value is eaten as well. No, the value of the hamburger is preserved while as a use value it's eaten. So there's been a transubstantiation, there's been a transfer of value from the hamburger into the monetary form before it's eaten. If it's eaten before it's sold, then, then you're in trouble, right? So again, what Marx is saying here is you can't understand this dynamic without understanding the circulation process. Because what the circulation process does is to take you from the production process into the commodity which is taken to market, which is then sold for the money, and after it is sold for the money, the commodity itself drops out of circulation. Unless, of course, it's one of those commodities that comes back because it's machinery to be used in productive consumption. But what we're looking at here is final consumption. So materially, the commodity drops out. The value which has been both preserved in the, in, in the commodity and <coughs> augmented by the surplus value, that value is retained. And that continues in the spiral form because of the increase that's occurred, which allows for further increase. Now, this leads Marx uh, from 318 on to all kinds of uh, diversions. Um, one diversion is the kind of question of interest. Well, what happens if you borrowed some money and you owe interest? Shouldn't we incorporate that into the discussion somehow or other? Is it independent or is it not? And, and Marx is kind of saying, well, okay, that's an issue, but I can't really ha end up handling it here. That has to wait uh, until volume three of Capital and the theory of distribution. Uh, what, of, what about uh, uh, the robbery of, uh, of, of asset values? And he introduces the whole kind of question on 319 of original accumulation uh, and the like. So there are various ways in which historically you might see a, a seeming expansion in the system and it may be a real expansion in the system. And if you have uh, usurers who are demanding high interest rates, then people will actually therefore uh, capture uh, the monetary forms and, 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 and the like. But this then leads him on 321 to get round finally to the kind of question of the theory of surplus value, which is the theory that he's driving to try to uh, set up. And he says, the surplus value which capital has at the end of the production process, a surplus value which, as a higher price of the product, is realized only in circulation, 
but like all prices, is realized in it by already ideally presupposed to it, determined before they enter into it. This surplus value signifies, is expressed in accord with the general concept of exchange value, that the labor time objectified in the product or amount of labor, the magnitude of labor appears uh, as an amount of space, but expressed in motion, it is measurable only in time. But that value is greater than that which was present at the original, in the original components of capital. This, in turn, is possible only if the labor objectified in the price of labor is smaller than the living labor time purchased with it. So here we get into the kind of question of the distinction between the value of labor power, which is fixed by the value of the commodities needed to reproduce the laborer at a given standard of living, the distinction between the value of labor power and the value which that labor power can create in production. And what the capitalist does is to use their newfound power, which is given to them by labor, to force the laborer to produce the surplus value. And that is done uh, by this calculation uh, of the amount of hours which are needed. Uh, and the whole kind of theory of surplus value is laid out on page 334, 24 to 5. Uh, as he says, if, however, this is 324, middle, if, however, only half a working day is necessary in order to keep one worker alive one whole day, then the surplus value of the product is self-evident. The only thing which can make him into a capitalist is not exchange, but rather a process through which he obtains objectified labor time, i.e. value, without exchange. Half the working day costs capital nothing. It thus obtains a value for which it has given no equivalent. And the multiplication of values can take place only if a value in excess of the equivalent has been obtained, hence created. So, here's the definition. Surplus value in general is value in excess of the equivalent. The equivalent, by definition, is only a, the identity of value with itself. Hence, surplus value can never sprout out of the equivalent nor can it do so originally out of circulation. It has to arise from the production process of capital itself. The great historic quality of capital is to create this surplus labor, superfluous labor from the standpoint of mere use value, mere subsistence. And its historic destiny is fulfilled as soon as, on one side, there has been such a development of needs that surplus labor above and beyond necessity has itself become a general need arising out of individual needs themselves. And on the other side, when the severe discipline of capital acting on succeeding generations has developed general industriousness as a general property of the new species. So then this stuff comes back echoing what we've already done, which is to recognize that the driving force is the multiplication of capital and its, its expansion. And this is a general expansion which also affects the laborer and comes back and infects the laborer. Uh, in 325 he says, capital's ceaseless striving towards the general form of wealth 
drives labor beyond the limits of its natural paltriness, and thus creates the material elements for the development of the rich individuality, which is all-sided in its production as in its consumption, and whose labor also therefore appears no longer as labor, but as the full development of activity itself, in which natural necessity in its direct form has disappeared, because a historically created need has taken the place of a natural one. This is why capital is productive. Find this interesting. You're looking at the way in which capital becomes productive. And the way it becomes productive is by changing the productivity of labor. So that labor is now being governed, dominated if you like, by capital. But that domination also is connected to a transformation of needs. Needs which go beyond natural necessity. As he says, a historically created need has taken the place of the natural one. Now, then he gets into sort of discussions of various ways in which people have thought about surplus value. And there's a a whole discussion of the, of the physiocrats with whom Marx is uh, fairly sympathetic. The physiocrats basically took the view that all value arose out of agriculture and agricultural production. Marx obviously is not going to ride with that, but on the other hand, uh, he's very sympathetic to the, to the position the physiocrats took which is that productive labor uh, is going to uh, create the value. Uh, but in the physiocrat's case, it was uh, productive labor on the land which did it, and everything else was secondary. In a way, this is sort of a bit understandable because during the period when the physiocratic view was strongest, uh, most uh, uh, manufacturing activity was was conducted in small workshops and it uh, wasn't a factory system or anything of that kind and the small workshops were largely attached uh, to uh, the aristocracy uh, were m making beautiful things for the aristocracy you know this is the kind of thing when you go to the uh, Chateau in Versailles, you see the kind of thing we're talking about, uh, and uh, that that labor was considered parasitic, and there's a sense in which it was, because it rested upon the base of a vast amount of exploitation of living labor in the agricultural sector, and the industrial sector was seen as something which was sort of placed on, that, on, on, on top of that. So the physiocrats had this kind of idea and tried to work with this idea. Marx is sort of sympathetic to it, but then kind of said, well, this is, you know, this is not the situation that uh, we are dealing with. This is something uh, uh, really quite different. Uh, and uh, But he also recognizes, and this is a, a, an important idea which I tried to incorporate a bit in the diagram that uh, uh, labor 
uh, is actually affected by the natural conditions under which it is performed. So Marx uh, talks uh, about, uh, yes, it's alien labor, uh, but there is uh, something which would, we want to call the gifts, the free gifts of nature, which he mentions on 3.30. Uh, for in, in Adam Smith, for example, said, well, labor in principle is the source of value. Uh, it's also a source of wealth. But actually, labor too posits surplus value only insofar as in the division of labor, the surplus appears as just as much a gift of nature, a natural force of society, as the soil with the physiocrats. So the surpluses were frequently augmented by higher fertility, natural fertility, and all the rest of it. So if that was the case, then this, this had clearly an effect uh, upon uh, the use values that could produ be produced with a certain amount of labor input. And uh, of course, this means that uh, uh, rents can also arise out of this, that the landlord who has the more fertile land is likely to say, well, we're going to have to charge higher rents on that. So what this leads into is, of course, that land, labor, and capital are founded on the class relation of landlords, capitalists, and laborers. Uh, and uh, the concept of capital, therefore, has to be set in that kind of context uh, in the physiocratic uh, period. But then merchant capital and the mercantilist position comes in. So Marx briefly considers uh, on 332 mercantile capital. Uh, then recognizes also, well, bankers come into it. So there are all sorts of ways uh, in which uh, the surplus can be appropriated and used. And, and the connectivity between surplus value production and all of these other forms of capital uh, is... Uh, becomes part of the story. But this then brings us back to something which we're going to encounter again and again in the Grundrisse. Uh, on 334, uh, clearly the value of labor power is something which is variable. And if you can drive the value of labor power down, then there's more surplus value. Clearly, the value of labor power is attached to a certain length of the working day. So you can augment uh, surplus value by lengthening the working day. So there are all these kinds of things going on between capital uh, and labor. Um, and the capitalists can find ways to work the, work, the laborer harder, uh, longer hours, all those kinds of things, or for less and less wages. Uh, and maximize uh, their, their, their surplus value. Uh, but this does not in itself uh, suggest that there is a natural limit uh, to the wealth uh, which uh, capital can uh, appropriate. Um, and so he says on 334, as representative of a general form of wealth, Money capital is the endless and limitless drive to go beyond its limiting barrier. 
every boundary is and has to be a barrier for it, else it would cease to be capital. Money is self-reproductive. If ever it perceived a certain boundary, not as a barrier, but became comfortable within it as a boundary, it would itself have declined from exchange value to use value, from a general form of wealth to a specific substantial mode of the same. Capital as such creates a specific surplus value because it cannot create an infinite one all at once. But it is a constant movement to create more of the same. The quantitative boundary of the surplus values appears to it as a mere natural barrier, as a necessity which it constantly tries to violate and beyond which it constantly seeks to go. Now this idea of endless accumulation and the constant leaping over of all barriers to further expansion of the system is here kind of critical to, to Marx's presentation. And of course, it's one of the arguments that I would certainly make today that this leaping over barriers and the intent to go even bigger and bigger and further and further uh, and the way in which the quantitative boundary of the surplus value never appears to be satisfying to capital. We always need more. Uh, and here is Marx kind of saying, this is in, and again, it comes back to the question of the nature of capital. It's not that capital is, nat is natural, but that capital has a nature, and this is its nature. And this is its form of abstraction. And here also we go back to the idea that this is, if you like, the, 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 the phantom objectivity which is driving this, the abstractions. And if you remember, two, two sessions ago, we were talking a lot about this system is driven by abstractions. Even the capitalist is alienated because they're driven by abstractions. The market is there. And what Marx is trying to do is to say this system has certain qualities which, as it comes into being and as it becomes more powerful and more significant, become undeniable. We are constantly leaping over the boundaries. It always will find ways. In recent times, the credit system. The expansion of the credit system since around 1970 has been phenomenal. Did you know that every single man, woman, child on planet Earth at this point is in debt up to the tune of something like $85,000? Every single <coughs> human being, $85,000. So before you leave, you have to pay off your debt. <laughs> of course, the interesting thing about this is for every debt, there's also a credit. So it means that somebody is owed. And there's a big question, are you a net creditor or a net debtor? But the, 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 it's an abstraction too. Yes, but it's a powerful one and it has, has objective meaning. Eighty-five thousand, yeah, and 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 in in the nineteen seventies, if any entity was in debt, for instance, there was always this debt to GDP ratio. 
And if you went above 70 or 80%, it was considered to be really dangerous. So you would go and discipline Mexico, or you'd discipline all of those countries because they had too much debt relative to their GDP, when their GDP, when the ratio was around 70 or 80%. The global debt right now, in relationship to global GDP, is something like 230 or 240%. Which would have been, which, now this is what we call leaping over barriers. And you can you just go look at some of the graphs. A very good place to go, by the way, is um, there's something called uh, uh, FRED, which is the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of St. Louis. And it collects all this data and it gives you all these graphs. And, and uh, there's a graph of indebtedness, which, which, which is exponential growth of indebtedness. There's a growth. Uh, there's a, a graph of world money supply, which just goes. So this is the leaping over barriers, and it's in capital's nature to do it. And here is Marx saying in so 1858. I, he's saying, look, this is the nature of the beast. This is what is coming into being. This is what is becoming. And and this is what what we could expect from this system. These are the abstractions which are driving it. And capital can't do anything about it because capital is alienated too. And in particular, it's going to be alienated. He doesn't use this term here, but in capital, he does uses it frequently. He kind of talks about the coercive laws of competition. The coercive laws of competition force capital to do certain things. The laws of motion of capital and that's, and that's what Marx is trying to say. We should try to understand these laws of motion of capital. And as we understand these laws of motion of capital, we understand what it is that capital might have to do, not what it wants to do or what the evil spirits amongst the capitalists are doing. No, it's nothing to do with that. It's the, 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 the nature of the abstractions which are driving this system. And I think what is so remarkable about Marx in, 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 in this literature is the way in which he starts to, to recognize what the nature of capital is about and what it is likely to do. It is a system out of control. There is no control on it. And in fact, what he's saying here is it cannot stand any kind of control. And then, of course, we have the mentality, which is about deregulation of everything, and that therefore everything should be decontrolled. Because the abstraction of the market is going to, well, this is the Adam Smith view, the abstraction of the market is going to drive the system in such a way as to be to the benefit of all. And what Marx is kind of saying, of course, says in Capital, is it's not to the benefit of all, and in any case, it's driving the system to expand so that, you know, the constant sort of expansion of use values and all of that create, uh, creates a, a humongous sort of waste problem in the same way that it creates uh, a huge increase in carbon emissions and all those other things. So you, know, you, you can sort of slot into this little account here, uh, 334, 335. 
about endless and limitless drive to go beyond its limiting barriers. Every boundary is and has to be a barrier for it. Else it would cease to be capital. Okay. Now when I make an argument that I'm an anti-capitalist, this is the reason I'm an anti-capitalist. Everybody thinks it's because I got something wrong with my DNA or something. Obviously, I don't understand the beauty of this system. But, but this, I, I tell you, you, you read a passage like this and do what I did this one, which I do regularly every morning, is I turn on Bloomberg Financial News. And everybody's kind of saying, you know, we're not growing fast enough. No, well, no, how are we going to get there? You know, where are we, how can we position ourselves better so that we take advantage of something? I mean, the whole news channel is a celebration of the continuous expansion of capital and the continuous overcoming of any barriers which get in the way of anything. Uh, and the idea that guy may become president is, you know, it, it, well, it's almost as insane as the one we currently have. But this is this, this is the this is the uh, this is this is what Marx is 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 uh, revealing. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't really go much further with that. He then takes up tedious calculations of oh, God knows what. Um, Thalers and more Thalers and you know I don't know why he got into that um, he recognizes of course that there are certain barriers which are difficult to circumvent uh, he mentioned some of these on, on 340 because he starts immediately to get into the idea that one of the things that's going to have to change is continuous increase in the productivity of labor, in the physical productivity of labor, and that therefore innovations for productivity of labor and what he later called relative surplus value, and he starts to articulate something about relative surplus value, uh, but that there are uh, diminishing returns in productivity, that uh, while you can have huge leaps in productivity uh, from a very low base, then it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain uh, the expansion of the rates of productivity. So this is, I think, a, a, a point where there is a, a certain self-limitation within the dynamics of, uh, of the, the system. Um, but like I say, I, all these tedious sort of thalas uh, and thalas, and it just goes on for pages and pages. Uh, um, but with, with occasional flashes of, uh, I think, uh, brilliant uh, uh, commentary, but there's nothing, nothing very much that I could find in here. Maybe, maybe you found some if you plowed through it, uh, but it's not, it's not that. So this takes me up uh, to um, somewhere around 360, uh, where Marx is here talking about, uh, comes back to the question of labor, uh, and uh, the 
way in which value has to be preserved in the process at the same time as it's also uh, surpluses are generated. But all of this, uh, and it's a nice phrasing I, I always like and I often quote on page 361, uh, with I think a very a brilliant evocative sentence and in the midst of all of this uh, tedious stuff, where he kind of says, labor is the living form-giving fire. It is the transitoriness of things, their temporality, as their formation by living time. In the simple production process, leaving aside the realization process, the transitoriness of the forms of things is used to posit their usefulness. Um, the transitoriness and, and temporality is something which is evoking here. Um, he doesn't take it up very much. In fact, uh, one of the things I, I regret very much is that Marx never uh, attempted to create a, a, a chapter of the sort that existed in the, the working day in Capital, where Marx talks about uh, the transformation of the temporality of things. Uh, because the changing temporalities of capital are, I think, uh, very, very significant. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that if you want. But that idea of the form-giving fire and the transitoriness of things, uh, again, is Marx evoking something about the nature of capital uh, as uh, an, an economic system. Uh, that is going, going to, 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 to work in a certain kind of uh, way. So on 365, he uh, offers a summary of uh, uh, where, he's, where he's been in this stuff. We see, therefore, that the capitalist, by means of the exchange process with the worker, by indeed paying the worker an equivalent for the cost of production contained in his labor capacity, that is an equivalent set by the standard of living of labor, i.e. giving him the means of maintaining his labor capacity, but appropriating living labor for himself, so the capitalist takes the living labor, the fire, the, uh, the, the, the fire of labor, obtains two things free of charge, First, the surplus labor, which increases the value of his capital. But at the same time, secondly, the quality of living labor, which maintains the previous labor materialized in the component parts of capital, and thus preserves the previously existing value of capital. But this preservation does not take place as a result of an increase in the amount of labor objectified by living labor, a creation of value, but simply as a result of its existence as living labor in the proper relation with material and instrument. So the preservation of labor is something that occurs on the side, as it were. It's a side benefit. It's a free gift uh, that the laborer uh, gives to capital by preserving the value as well as creating the surplus value. And this prevents uh, a topic which crops up occasionally in the Grundrisse and does so in significant ways, where Marx talks about the possibility of devaluation, which is on 365, uh, that if capital does not grasp 
the means of production and use them creatively in the production of value and surplus value, uh, then that capital is devalued. So the prospect exists for the devaluation of capital. If this whole circulation process gets blocked, then there's going to be devaluation. One of the impacts of what you know, the virus in China is going to be significant devaluation. Uh, one of the things that happens with wars and things like that is significant devaluation. No, because underutilized capacity is, you know, is not destroyed. In fact, Marx has has three terms he uses. I mean, this is not in capital. He 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 talks about destruction, which is physical destruction. Uh, he talks about depreciation, which is the loss of monetary value, and he talks about devaluation, which is the the loss of the value which is incorporated in there. Now, if a factory uh, stops and all the machine rusts, then you've got devaluation and you've got unused productive capacity, which, which may then be devalued. It's likely to be depreciated. In some cases, it'll be destroyed. Uh, so capital gets, you know, uh, those three terms are not synonymous with each other. In fact, Marx uh, talks about uh, investments in the built environment, uh, where the original value is destroyed, but the use value remains, it's not destroyed. Uh, for instance, the uh, tube lines in, in London uh, were built in such a way, and uh, the companies that built them went bankrupt so they were devalued, and they sat around for a few years, and then somebody came in and, and bought them up for almost nothing. But the tunnels were still there, so the, the use value was still there. But, and, and Marx kind of says, well, that's often the way in the built environment, that the first wave of investors goes bankrupt, and, and then somebody comes in and buys it up uh, dirt cheap, and then they make a success of it. So the depreciation, devaluation, and destruction are, are sort of Part and parcel. Well, here he's talking about devaluation, which is the loss of value that arises. And the loss of value occurs, which, which would connect to what you're saying, as he says, not because something is not sold or not used, but because it is not sold or used in time. Uh, that is, that if you have a depreciation schedule on fixed capital machinery, and he can't use it for five years, then even though the machinery is still there, you may not be able to pick it up again because it's you know, just too late. So the temporality then becomes important. So he introduces the notion of the potentiality of, uh, of devaluation. Uh, and uh, that's uh, then a significant uh, uh, introduction, but he doesn't do anything much uh, with it. So that actually then brings us, if you like, to the end of this part of capital, of part of capital of Grandrisa. So let me stop here, and maybe we can 
have a, some discussion over some issues that arise. Yeah, you have you have to use the, the microphone so that we can get it on. Just a, hi, just a quick question. Um, you talked about um, the constant expansion of use value, how it creates waste problems. I thought that would be the. I want. I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more because I thought that that would be like the constant expansion of exchange values. How is it the use values? Um, well, the, the, the constant expansion of the, of, of the use values presumes that there is some place that wants, needs, um, desires them. So the question of, uh, and if, the, if there is no use value, then there's no value. This is Mark. Mark doesn't make that argument here, but but if if uh, I take my whatever my commodity to market and nobody wants or needs it, then the labor incorporated in it is not value. So the expansion of use values uh, on the world market becomes absolutely absolutely connected to this constant drive to expand value. You can, in other words, you can't expand value without somehow or other finding uh, use values which are, which are going to be consumed. And not only do you, do you need one need or desire for it, you also need uh, enough money to pay for it. So if there is no, if, there is no, if you take this, this diagram, if you get to the point of the market and you can't transform the commodity into money because nobody's there to buy it, then you've, you, you, you've lost your value. There's no value. But you're, you're being driven because you want to get the exchange values, right? Yes, like right. you're driven by it but, it, but at the same time, you're producing a ton of stuff and yeah. people don't actually use it. So yeah. the use value, wouldn't that be like zero or lower? Like there, what's driving them is the exchange value, right? And then that's well, why they're overproducing. Con consumer, why would why would you why would why would you spend a lot of money on something you don't want? You wouldn't. No, right. So. But as a capitalist, you would want you're yeah. producing a bunch of stuff people don't need because you're chasing exchange values. Yeah, right. Right. But if you if, if nobody wants it, then you you've lost. So you don't you don't get the exchange value and you don't get the value. So Marx is very explicit about that, that if, if there is no market for it and there's no sale. <coughs> and the, 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 this, is, this is why the totality starts to become important, because you, you are producing value and surplus value at the point of production. Then the question arises, if it just stays in the point of production, it dies, disappears, it becomes devalued. Okay. So you've you've got to you've got to get it to the next step. So you've got to keep the circulation process going, and the circulation process requires that there be a transition from that point where you've produced something, a commodity, so that you can monetize the commodity and get the money, and then you can go with the money and start doing things. But if you can't make that transition, then you've got devaluation, which is why he introduces the concept of devaluation here, just briefly. 
because it's not to the point now that it's going to come back later on and then that also comes back to the question of the barriers what are the barriers to the constant expansion of this system one of them is consumer appetite so one of the things that capital has to do is to actually affect consumer appetites and you know, and how does it do that? Well, there are all sorts of strategies it does that. And that's why the temporality becomes important. Because one of the things it has to do is to push very hard uh, on... Uh, uh, in, fact, in fact, capital is invested increasingly in those spheres of production where the, where the consumption time is very short. Because if, if consumption time is very long, then you know, there's no expansion. So, um, this, this produces what I would call a Netflix economy. I mean, the consumption of a Netflix uh, uh, episode is, is, is an hour, you know. That's it. And, and so there's a lot of value which is put into the creation of the episode, but the consum consumer time is close to zero. Whereas, if, when you make a house, you've got a consumption time when you're looking at, you know, at least 30, if not 50 years. So if you only made houses, capital would be in a terrible mess. Which is why capital wants to create more and more houses and knock them down again. Portable houses and all the rest of it. So, accelerating consumption time is built is built into the expansion that, that, that we're talking about here, and and uh, it's interesting. Um, areas areas of of, of watch where watch where capital flows in terms of investment. What does it invest in? Um, and most of the fields of, of real active investment these days are area are fields where the consumer time is very short. Hmm? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing is tourism. Tourism is something that's consumed, you know. So, so capital has been investing vast amounts in cruise liners, which are probably not <coughs> going to be so popular in the next few years, given the fact that people have been stuck on them for. So, so, I mean. Take, take the, for example, the, the vast investment that goes into, in, into cruise lines. And that is, that is something that is consumed by people going on the cruise, and that's it. Now, this is a field of investment which, which seems to have, you know, when, when Marx puts this thing and kind of says, look, there are barriers to be overcome. How do you overcome the barrier which, of, of temporality of certain forms of consumption? And so the forms of consumption, which are very short, which is why I like that little thing about you know, form giving fire of labor and the temporality and, and so on. It's very, it's very interesting because it says the temporality has to, has to change. So the temporality, I mean, um, and part of that is also planned obsolescence. I mean, uh, for instance, when, you, when, you had, when the telephone was a landline, there was a limited market. Now it's become mobile and they've become new apps and all that kind of stuff. How, you know, how many phones have you had over the last 
10 years. I'm not asking it to confess, but most of us, most of us have had several, right? And, and the same is true of computers, electronics, uh, and of course, video games and all those kinds of things. There's a whole, whole set of, and, and, and the qualities of daily life have been absolutely kind of re completely reshaped around the, the, the requirement that you reduce uh, the cons consumption time to as close to zero as possible. So also that means uh, spectacle. Spectacles are instantaneously consumed. So Guy Debord was quite correct in 1967 when he wrote The Society of the Spectacle, but he didn't know how important what he was writing was about. So, so the world, I mean, again, Marx is kind of saying these abstractions are ruling us. And so the whole kind of question of temporality, you know, and the temporality of things is, is being transformed. And Marx, again, Marx is kind of saying, yeah, well, whether you'd expect that at a certain point. And, and therefore the whole kind of structuring of wants, needs and desires. And, and, and uh, you know, and I always find it great. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting to look at ads on the TV, you know, I mean, all those things that the way where where you have this fantasy that you're going to end up uh, on some wonderful beach, you know, with this fantasy vacation, and and of course, but all the things that go into that are significant because you've got the airlines, you've got the you know the the amount of of, of capital that gets absorbed, not simply in the tourist industry itself, but also in all of the physical infrastructures you need for the tourist industry. <coughs> but Marx is kind of saying all of this is kind of, if you stick with capitalism, this is what you're going to get. You don't really have much of a, of, of, of a choice unless you kind of say, okay, this, this beast has gone too far and we need to come up with some other way of organizing political and economic life, which is a kind of a big story. But the interesting thing is that Marx is kind of basically saying, well, you know, this is, this is what we should be thinking about and you should be understanding the abstractions. But if I go on uh, sort of Bloomberg News and think that I'm going to get anything on there that says, does anything other than fetishizing the wondrous extractions of of this whole thing, as if somehow or other this is, you know, this is utopia in the making. And, and uh, Marx is kind of saying, well, you know, I'm not so sure it's a utopia in the making. It, it, this may dis be dystopia in the making, and in fact, we have a lot of evidence that that is indeed uh, what, we're, what we're witnessing and what we're living with and what we're living through. Sorry, this sounds a bit depressing, oh, man. I don't I don't need to discourage you from taking a cruise <laughs> or getting a new phone or watching Netflix and binge watching, you know. We all do those things because that's that's what daily life is. But we've got to understand where it comes from. And so Marx I think is trying to and and, and I think it's just very well laid out here just in this kind of crazy you know, 
sort of experiment that he's engaging in here. Uh, I would like to just to ask maybe um, to go further with the immaterial values, cultural values. So <laughs> if you have like a music, uh, whenever, how you relate this, because there is always a, a material uh, collective value in a music piece, which is maybe now, which is not uh, important at the, uh, the in a period of time, but gets important uh, like a hundred years afterwards. <laughs> so, um, how I'm much interested in cultural values. So how how you think uh, that works out for Marx? Well, two two things. First, I think this question, which I've been raising here about the temporality of things, uh, has uh, tremendous implications for cultural forms. I think it's uh, intriguing that. Uh, since the 1970s, uh, the number of museums of everything has shot up. Because again, it's a form of consumerism, which uh, is instantaneous in its, in, its, in its forms, fits in, of course, with tourism and all the rest of it. Um, when I went to Baltimore in 1969, I think there were two museums. Now there are at least 30. And this is not exactly the city that you would imagine would be, be a cultural center of some kind. But, but so, yeah, so, so, so the point here also would be that you've got to understand cultural industries, and they're now called cultural industries. And what are the industries doing? Well, a lot of them are trading upon authenticity, which is which is an attempt to gain monopoly rents in some way in a field of, and, and so if you can do something special and be particular, you can get monopoly rents and monopoly incomes. And so it's a, it's a field of highly competitive uh, act, act, <coughs> activities of, of various kinds. So I think, but then, but then there's the, 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 the question of the motivations of the people involved and, and Marx, I, I think, uh, has an, it's, not, it's not, in, not in here, he has an interesting thing where he talks about uh, uh, Milton writing Paradise Lost and says, well, you know, was this a productive thing to do? What kind of labor was it that went into uh, the writing of Paradise Lost? And Marx's answer was, you know, well, Milton wrote Paradise Lost in exactly the same way that a silkworm spins silk. It was in his nature to write something of that kind. And in itself, it is, it is of course, a content of a certain kind. It started to get commodified when Milton transferred the rights to, to uh, publish it to a publisher for five pounds or something ridiculous like that, and got five pounds. And so the publisher then will turn it into a book and will sell the book, in which case it becomes a commodity where there's you know, surplus value with the book binders and all the rest of it. So, so but the content is, is, is of course, uh, something which comes out of human creativity. And this is what Marx talks about when he's talking about the free gifts. 
of, 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 of labor uh, to capital. That is, it provides the content. And we see a lot of this in other areas. For instance, uh, the development of uh, much of uh, the internet. Uh, was, a lot of it was peer-to-peer, non-remunerated um, labor and and indeed with some of these other things you probably know more about it reddit or whatever you know that that, that can get organized but look who's benefited from it who's got the monopoly power out of it who's stacked up huge wealth out of it? i mean this is in a sense this is exactly like the sort of thing marx is talking about here that labor created the capital and the capital comes back to dominate the laborer and so the folk who kind of were there doing the peer-to-peer computing and doing all of that kind of stuff, uh, basically living in poverty somewhere or because where all of their innovations have been appropriated and stolen away. Yeah. So, so in fields like this, yes, you, you have a, a lot of things going on. Um, but, but also, you know, there are other peculiar aspects to it, like this, the whole sponsorship you know, everything, you know, sort of sponsored by British Petroleum or Exxon or whatever, which has a lot to do with, with, with branding values and what that's all about. And that's kind of complicated territory uh, to, to assess also. But you can't take an area like culture and somehow or other treat it as somehow or other outside because, in, in my view, the culture of daily life uh, is is uh, is foundational for all of us, and what what in effect we've seen as a transformation in the cultures of daily life, which have everything to do with this dynamic which we're looking at here, of getting past barriers uh, and saying, okay, we've got a barrier there. Uh, we're not going to, you know, there's not much in the long-term market of making this. We should go off and, you know recognize you know, the Netflix economy or something like that, which is, which again, there has to be content. And the content is often free gift coming from various, various, various sources, which capital appropriates. Uh, I guess though, all of us uh, who are in this would love to be appropriated, <laughs> provided we're paid, <laughs> paid enough. Hey, Dr. Harvey, um, I just uh, connecting a couple of passages here. I mean, the, this this piece on 361, the labor is the living form giving fire. I mean, this is this is pretty powerful stuff for those who are the laborers that produce that. Right. I mean, yeah. that's a that that really seems to be at the center of, of, right. of the system as in terms of a social force that could be revolutionary. And then but then going back to 308 in this piece that says thus all the progress of civilization um and so on that 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 passage and it 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 is just striking to me you know in the time he's writing this and was this 1857 58 thereabouts and um you know thinking about his time but also thinking about our time the this piece of you know the labor that leads to you know there, there wouldn't be any of these things produced uh, 
you know, in terms of leading to the creation of world market machinery, um, you know, and I, I just think about the way that people then and now would be, are made to feel um, disconnected, that the, the capitalists, that this belongs to them, that they're actually the legitimate owners and they wield this and in fact we're just, you know, we're just a bun bunch of dumb workers, even though we've produced, you know, we've helped produce this, if that makes sense. And uh, just thinking about that time in this, uh, just, you know, the same year, 1858, here in the U.S., Senator, uh, was it Hammond from South Carolina, gave the mudsill speech, you know, he's defending the system of slavery and he's, all the entrapments of being part of the slave power and he's got, he's basically saying, you know, we're the rightful legitimate, you know, in our, you know, we can quote, quote Greek and we're highly educated, these slaveholders in South Carolina and it's all built on this system, um, you know, this order, but, but at the bottom of which is enslaved black workers producing right. that cotton. And so anyway, just connecting that time to this in terms of the ideological and political and social impact of this process. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, you know, there are some there are some passages in Marx and um, also some readings of Marx which tend to emphasize a kind of teleology that somehow or other it was bad and then it got better and there was progress and all that kind of thing. Um, but certainly uh, we have to pay attention to the transition from one mode of production to another. And I think what Marx is saying here and he says throughout, is at a certain point, this system which we have, which is a capitalist system, uh, driven by its abstractions, that it doesn't have a place uh, for slavery. It has to transcend that mode of production in the same way that it transcended uh, feudalism and so on, which is not to say there are not feudal residuals residuals of slavery and in fact right now a re-emergence re of certain forms of, uh, of, of slavery going on. So I think, I think f for me I, I, I'd rather avoid the teleology reading that kind of says there's, a, there's, there's a progress here, but at the same time recognize that this system which Marx is talking about, the totality, has been evolving and has created a, a, a world which is now radically different from what it was in 1858. And, and the radical difference is in certainly in terms of its technologies, speed up, all of those kinds of things. But the big thing which is very much continued in this, and this is where the invisible thread comes in. The invisible thread is the capital-labor relation, which is foundational. And to the degree that that thread, that invisible thread, that phantom objectivity continues, uh, if you like, to, to, to dominate. Labor is dominated by capital, even though labor creates capital. So in a sense, labor is dominated by something it creates. And I think what Marx is trying to do is to say to working people, you, you're creating them. 
withdraw your labor and they're dead. So I think that there's a kind of a, uh, a positionality that is, that is the, or, or a consciousness that is implied in what Marx is kind of saying. But at the same time, Marx is not going to say that all of those things that have been created in terms of knowledge, in terms of productivity, capacity, all those kinds of things, are evil things. His, his point would be is, if we change the social relations, how would we use those things? Which of those things would we discard and which of those things would we, would we want to preserve? And clearly we would want to preserve quite a few of those things. But some of them, you know, we could we could do without. I mean, so I, I think it's. I think his 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 politics here are, 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 I think, along along those lines. At least I read him that way. There are other people who would, who would probably disagree with me. That's how I tend to, uh, to, to 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 look at it. But I think that, for me anyway, the recognition of the nature of capital. And what it is, what it what it is about, and and the kinds of things that it is going to produce, and the kinds of dynamics, the dialectics of its own evolution, if you like. But understanding something about that, I think, creates an imperative to start to think about an alternative. How to get there is is a you know, another another question, but but what the nature of the beast is, is important. Um, so, uh, speaking about the distinction between labor and labor power, that what is being sold is the labor power, not the labor, or not the laborer, actually. Uh, I can't see the, the distinction that much, because when we think of where is the site of production, is it the factory or or its life? Mm -hmm. If it's life, so what is being sold is the labor life. It's the laborer. It's the worker himself kind of is being sold. If we sort of the whole uh, debates about social reproduction, um, it's my life that is being sold out there. And the distinction between my labor force and my life is not that clear for me. I think what Marx is trying to do is to say that uh, uh, the, the use value of uh, labor power is something that's defined by capital. Uh, the laborer's life is separate from that. And I think the separation is important for Marx because Marx is kind of very much concerned with a, a positionality of critique of the labor process as it is organized under capital. Um, and if you recall last week when he was sort of talking about the way in which uh, the worker lives and the choice, their life choices and so on, which is given to them by their, by their position as, as wage laborers, 
which then says they, they go into the market as workers, but once they're in the market, they are buyers. And the relationship shifts from capital and labor to buyers and sellers. And as a worker, once you've got your wage, you're free to do with it what you want, up to a level. I mean, there are certain necessities, and of course, one of the things Marx is saying in that section is by and large capital tries to drive your necessities down to the cheapest possible wage level so that you don't have that much discretion. But situations arise in which, he says in capital at a certain point, that situations arise in which uh, the scarcity of labor is such that uh, way, you know, wages go up, uh, in which case the golden chain, he says, which connects workers to capital is lengthened. And then there's a certain amount of consumer choice which exists. Uh, this was a, a very important uh, idea in the, say, late 1960s, early 1970s, when there was a great deal of discussion of what were called affluent workers. Uh, you know, the auto worker with the union who had, uh, you know, lived in a suburban house and had two cars in the driveway and a television set, all this kind of stuff. So, so. So there was a period when people were kind of saying, well, you know, when I was first taught teaching capital, people would always ask me about, well, what about the affluent worker? It's very interesting. Nobody asked me that question anymore because, <laughs> because that sort of disappeared. But, but it disappeared under a political assault from Reagan and Thatcher and all the neoliberals piling in and saying, we've got we to gotta liberate capital from all of this kind of uh, social welfare stuff. And which is still going on, of course. So yes, and, and, and but that, but but I think what, what what Marx is trying to do is to say, look, the worker is a, has a positionality, and 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 in a sense, this goes back to to what was being said earlier. From what positionality can can a working class mount a critique of the system in which they have their being, and if they see themselves only as being within that system, then there is no possibility of critique. Whereas I think Marx is trying to say, well, outside of that, understand that when you give your labor power, you're just giving your labor power. And it's alienated labor. It doesn't belong to you. Your product doesn't belong to you. Conditions of labor are set by somebody else. Uh, frequently, you're in a situation where you're an appendage of the machine, and you just do as the machine uh, instructs so that you're that. But that is, and he wants to say, that's not life. That's, that's a kind of a, a living death uh, in a way. So we have to think about what would create uh, an unalienated existence. And, and actually a lot of things here, I mean, part of the argument that was made in the 1970s and 1980s was to start to talk about compensatory consumerism in which, in a way, capital seem to be offering to the worker the sort of uh, Faustian thing of, well, okay, you, you know, you suffer in the, in the labor process and you give of your labor and it's, and, and okay, it's shit, you know, but once you leave the place, you have compensatory consumerism and you've got all of that cornucopia of all of those wonderful things you can do uh, when, you're, when you're at home and this kind of stuff. So compensatory consumerism was supposed to counter the alienation of labor 
by uh, a fulfilling life, and uh, but of course it didn't turn out to be that fulfilling. So people have given up on that one too uh, in these times, except to kind of say, well, you know, aren't you enjoying the latest iPhone, and and don't you enjoy being on Facebook, and don't you enjoy doing, you know, uh, all of these things? By the way, seem to me to be about actually mopping up people's time so they don't have time to think. I think this is kind of a very sinister side to. To, to a lot of that, but but uh, I think that for Marx anyway, I think the, the, the whole kind of question of trying, I mean, his, his aim I think is to educate the working class to their condition and their situation and the nature of this, this process. And to do that, I think he has to create a separate space or an idea of a separate space, which is somehow or other outside of this labor relation that say, well, you have not been bought. Your labor power has been bought, but not you. And I think that's a very important distinction he wants to, wants to make. I want to tease out this um, invisible thread a little more. You, you say, and Marx is arguing here, that um, a lot of it has to do with the subordination of labor power to capital. And I'm thinking in the case of worker-directed and owned firms in which workers own are kind of reversing that social relation to some extent, right? But it, and, and you know, as asset owners and as, um, and being able to democratically make decisions in the firm, right? It creates a new kind of social relation, but it seems to me that Mark Sears also says that, suggesting that there might be another source of another like um, notion of that invisible thread or that social relation that might is outside of the firm. And I think you're referencing it a little bit when you're referring to the kibbutz, right? That okay. we can develop these worker owned firms, but if there is still an institution, so I'm just trying to figure out what, what is it that other, you know, besides the subordination of labor power to capital, like, could we tease that out a little more? Yeah, I mean, Marx himself, of course, was was well aware of these sorts of initiatives, uh, and he was very respectful of uh, Robert Owen and um, you know the attempts to create uh, alternatives of that kind. Um, so I don't think he's he's. I mean, when 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 he's saying this is in the nature of capital to do this. And, and this is what it's about. I, there's a big, actually, it's interesting. He, I can't find him anywhere talking about capitalism. He always talks about capital, and it's the rules of mo laws of motion of capital, not of capitalism. So capitalism is something which is much bigger. And actually, in here, you do get, I think, some ideas about capitalism in ways that he tends to exclude from the analysis in his more sort of tightly organized critiques in, 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 in capital itself, which is interesting. It is called capital, not capitalism. So, so yeah, those, those uh, processes uh, are always there. There are feudal residuals, which he tends to kind of say, well, I'm not going to be concerned with them, but they certainly continue to, to play out. I mean, we still have a wretched monarchy in Britain, for example. Um, let's talk about a feudal residual. It's kind of 
it's bizarre. But 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 uh, so so there are and, and and then there are of course all the experiments which are trying to go outside of this. Uh, and that's where I think this notion I, I, I always will take from Lefebvre kind of saying, you know, you can go outside and you can try and construct something and you may construct something and it can be constructed for a while. And I think it's very important to do that and to then start to say, well, how can the whole system be like that? Uh, so if you look at something like Mondragon, which is the big kind of uh, collective uh, thing in, in Spain and, and, and that. Okay, you're, you're, but, but if you're in the middle of a, of a capitalist dynamic, it's very hard not to be, get caught up in, 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 inside of it. And one of the issues in, for example, Argentina, when there's a lot of, lot of recuperated factories and you know, worker crop, is that uh, situations arise that through competition, uh, in, in effect, you, 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 you become uh, an organizer of your own uh, repression. Uh, and and, and this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to be, be negative about any of these things, but I'm saying the, 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 that the, the invisible threads are very pernicious. And, and they watch out, they'll, 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 they'll get you, the phantom objectivity will come after you kind of thing. And I, I think it's interesting, he uses that language. Um, and he was very much taken, of course, with the uh, Dracula stories and, and, and Shelley and, you know, Frankenstein and all of that sort of stuff. So he was very well aware of that. And of course, you get some of that language in Capital. But, but I don't think that he's, he's trying to say that the, 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 the capitalist world will be totally dominated by all of this. No, there are many possibilities outside, but he's, he's interested in the internal contradictions within this structure as to how and under what circumstances it might crash, and he clearly sees that it, 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 uh, that it, it will create barriers to itself at a certain point, which will become insurmountable to itself, and the, at what point it will do that becomes then a kind of uh, question. Are we uh, out of time, more or less? Okay, I think we must stop there. So next week we do um, uh, 3.73 to 4.23. 3.73 to 4.23. Now, uh, I can tell you something about this. The first 20 pages, you're continuing with Thalas and, well, read it as fast as you can. <laughs> um, the, the last, the last twenty pages are, are, are very rich. I mean, this is this is this is what the good is like. You know, you're, you're reading, you kind of go, "Why am I reading this?" You know. So this, but the last twenty pages are very rich. So so and 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 do a lot of attention. So it may not be twenty, it may be twenty-one, but I can't tell you exactly how. But but. But the last part of this is, is actually very, very interesting. Whereas the first part is Thala land. Okay, good, thank you. <laughs>